This week on Deep Space Pride, a gay Star Trek podcast, Mike and Johnson interview me, New York Times bestselling author and host of The Ready Room, Will Wheaton. Thanks for joining us. Hey Johnson. Hey Mike. How's it going? Good. Uh, I am super excited about today. Yeah. Well, let's back up and talk a little bit about how we snagged this interview with Will Wheaton. So it all <laughs> happened because of you. Do you want to talk a little? Do you want to tell our fans and our listeners sure. what happened and how this all came about? I don't know if snag's the right word, but it took we did a snag bit it. Of time. We snagged it. Yes. You snagged an interview, yes. bitch. Whatever. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yes, we snagged the interview. Uh, it was a long process. I got the name and email of Will's manager from Dan Davidson, one of our Trek Geeks podcast network executive producers. And uh, I reached out twice, I think. I sent one email, didn't hear back. So I sent a follow up um, probably like a week later, didn't hear back. We were going to Chicago. So. I just, you know, I, I wanted to go like Will was one of the people who was going to be there and I wanted my picture taken with him and I wanted him to sign something. So I brought my copy of Just a Geek, not knowing that I could purchase a copy of Still Just a Geek while there. And I saw it and it sold out before I got back to it. Great. So anyway, but I um, I went up to, you know, I went up to his table because uh, I had I guess I had bought a ticket to have him sign something and met him, say, hey, you know, been reaching out to your team about an interview to talk about still just a geek. And he's like, yes, um, you know, we've been, I, you know, I don't know if I missed it. He said, I don't know if I missed email or whatever, but um, if you don't hear back from us by next Friday, he said, email me personally. And I will put you in touch with the right people. Yeah, and so you were, that's you what were I very excited to talk to Will. By the way, I was like standing at the sidelines doing other shit, and yes. I was like, "Go forth." No, and I think I think it, you know, yes, I am a huge Will Wheaton fan. I have been for a really, really long time. So for many reasons, some of which, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll talk about in the interview, but. Uh, so yeah, so he, you know, I reached out to him, followed up, didn't hear back. I, th I think right away I followed up again and then he put me in touch with his PR, the PR people for the book. And that went through a whole nother process. And, um, so finally, uh, we got into the mix and we sent them some dates and didn't hear back. And then the dates passed and then they reached out and said, can you send us some more dates? It took well, some time. Busy. Yes, it took, it took, some, a, you it know, took some time. All told, told I was. Wait, when was when was Chicago? The beginning of April. Okay. And here so we are. It took like three months. Yeah, yeah. 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 Not including the front, not even including the time. So I, you know, there's probably a month or a month and a half before Chicago right. that the I prequel. had the information. The prequel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So we've been, you know, so anyway, 
um yeah that's that's the long and short of it and it was it you know finally came about i mean surprisingly i sent this last batch of dates and they wrote back and said we still haven't heard from will we don't think it's going to happen but i'll let you know and then like an hour or two later they were like you're on and like it was tonight that night i think <laughs> yeah tonight and um i we like, i moved I social plans in anticipation <laughs> for this yes. interview so, i put blocks in your your uh so, so i didn't tell you i actually did have plans and i proactively moved them in i think i i think you did tell me that at one point yes this is uh super exciting it's been a long time in the making and uh you know you don't get a lot of time at convention tables to talk to someone and mm -hmm. uh you know i was also super nervous because i am an introvert and super shy and never you know don't know how to approach people that i admire and i admire him a lot and uh so it you know it was it was you know aside from just the logistics of it there was also some emotional not Mike, turmoil but just some the easiest time. way is to just not admire anyone and then you're set <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's my you know it's well, like oh whatever people are just people you know it's i mean like, yes i know whatever. he's i know he's i know he's people and uh i know he's human and um yes but still you know i just get nervous i'm i don't know i'm just self-conscious like that that's just who i am i mean i i many I people say i don't it. understand i don't understand how you can be like that you don't come off like that and i'm like that is me totally i am a pretty strong introvert and I'm an introvert. Uh, <laughs> you, you say that, and I'm yet totally you have more. You have more social plans than anyone I know. Anyone, anyone. Sure, sure, but it's in you small need... group settings. I'm an extrovert or introvert. Okay, yeah, yes. sure. I'll let you get away whatever with you call it. An ambivert. All right. Maybe. Yes. yes. I mean, yes, you can go days and days without going into the outside world. Correct. But yet you will have a full weekend from Friday night to Sunday night Correct. with dinners and brunches and teas and other things. Sure. Sure. Uh, with people all weekend long. So, um, yes. Whereas yes. I am, I am very much an introvert. So anyway, um, so I'm super I'm super excited about this. This is a big deal, and uh, I can't wait to share it with everyone. So, um, but before that, let's just give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Fansets. Fansets is the place for awesome pin collectibles, and uh, this month is no exception. I think it was back in mid. June that they released the full set of the Star Trek Prodigy crew, which I highly recommend that set of micro crew pins because that's the only way you can get all, all of them right now. And uh, they also have amazing Delta pins, including uh, they just released a mini DS9 Voyager pin for July 1st, along with a new pin in the Women of Trek series, Emperor Giorgio from the Mirror Universe. But head on over to Fansets, put a bunch of pins in your cart. You're going to love the quality and the amazing customer service that the team at Fansets provides. And if you use the code TREKGEEKS, all one word, all caps, at checkout, you're going to save 10% on your order. And if you spend more than $30, you're going to save, uh, you're going to get free shipping in the U.S. 
So we want to thank Fansets for being our exclusive sponsor on Deep Space Pride and the Trek Geeks Podcast Network. Thanks, Fansets. Now let's get into our interview with Will Wheaton. Sounds good. Our guest tonight is a New York Times bestselling author, the host of The Ready Room on Paramount+. Plus. He plays Wesley Crusher in the Star Trek franchise. He is also a father, a husband, an advocate for normalizing and mainstreaming mental health. He's an advocate for and an ally for the LGBTQIA plus community. He is an amazing audiobook narrator, actor, and voice actor, and one of the leaders of the resistance against the emboldened fascist community that seems to be growing in this country. We are super excited to have Will Wheaton with us on Deep Space Pride. Welcome, Will. It's a real privilege and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. First off, how are you and your family doing? Is everyone safe and healthy? Yep, everybody is safe and healthy. Um, I am uh, 30 days away from my 50th birthday, which is the next time the entire family will be together in the same place. And I'm really looking forward to that. Really, really, really grateful for vaccines and science. Um, So that that it is absolutely possible for us to be together because it will be the first of my birthdays since 2019 that the whole family's been together in one place. And I'm looking forward to that. That's awesome. Are you guys doing anything special? Are you guys doing anything fun? What are you going to do? We're going to have, uh, I, um, so like, as I'm turning 50, I don't care, but I know that when I pass 50, I will feel like I should have done something. So I'm kind of doing this for me of the future. So I feel like I didn't blow an opportunity to do something cool. Um, We're just getting together a small number of friends. We found a venue nearby that is outdoors, that is uh, like under a bunch of old growth oak trees and stuff, it's really beautiful place. uh, can I have a little bit of dancing and have a little bit of food? Uh, uh, I found out that I can rent some arcade games to put awesome. there for my friends to play. Okay. Uh, and it's just, it's just going to be that it's, um, there are a few friends that I have that if I said, Hey, why don't you come visit in LA? They wouldn't be able to do it. But if I said I'm turning 50 and having a party, they would absolutely come. So Anne and I felt like this was just a really great excuse to get people we love together to hang out and celebrate, not celebrate me turning 50, celebrate that we are all in each other's lives and what that means for all of us. That is uh, really cool. I am, uh, I am 49. So you, you and I are of the same age for the next 30 days. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, uh, I, and I wanted, I want to tell you, like, I, I know that there are many Wesley haters out there or there have been maybe not so much now, but, um, when I was growing up, I was 14 when you were 14. Uh, and when you walked onto the bridge of the enterprise, D, that, meant a lot to me uh to see a kid my age on there and i have been a fan of yours ever since Uh, i appreciate that thank you um you know the the numbers of 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 people who were like we hate wesley that like that that segment of you know that was before we called it toxic fandom it was toxic fandom and that that part of like entitled toxic fandom was real small but 
just massively overrepresented in in fan publications and in uh, and in the like Trekkie community at that time, it was not as open to kids and families as it is now. And and I think that's because there just wasn't a way for a kid to go, hey, that's me uh, on 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 the series. And when that happened, everything kind of shifted in fandom and it became this place for, for, for kids and families. And I hear all the time from, from people who are our age, who loved Star Trek because, accepting that Wesley was an objectively badly written character at times, um, uh, and in my estimation, always fell short of his like promise, right? Um, uh, that they felt that sense of familiarity and representation and uh and 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 heard very loudly and clearly hey smart weirdos there's a place for you in the future Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. you know there's it's it's cool there's all of you kids that are constantly being told by adults uh that you need to mind your business and stay out of the way well there's a place where the thing that makes you weird makes you really really super cool and like don't give that up i have met an uncountable number of people it's got to be in the half a million range at least now it might be a little higher than that people our age who have told me I saw myself in that character. And at this point, it's not even about me. It's about the existence of Wesley Crusher, right? Right. Um, uh, And the only way that I get involved in it is I realize that I get to like, now I get to just drown myself in the gratitude and the unbelievable privilege of having been the person who brought that character to life that meant so much to our generation and and kids, you know, a couple of years on either side of us. Um, And I'm disappointed to this day that the loud vocal toxic fans were given the attention that they were given then. And I'm disappointed always to, to hear that some of that still lingers today, some of that sense of like, well, you know, they really hated Wesley. And it's just not true. This little piece of toxic fandom hated Wesley. But that to say Wesley was a massively unpopular character, which you didn't say, but people do say, um, uh, is like picking out one of the amazing new Star Wars characters uh, that the toxic fandom decided right. to hate for one reason or another. Um, and uh, and saying, well, fans hate that character. Actually, no, toxic right. fans hate that character, and toxic fans kind of don't matter. Yeah, I always joke with my friends because I work in digital marketing, and I basically mm-hmm. give money to all the social media platforms, and yeah. I'm basically contributing to what is going to ruin our society, which is really social media and yeah. the place that it has when it comes to giving this really niche group of people this platform to just spew hatred and just talk about whatever shit they want to talk about. And they just seem really loud because of social media. So basically, I'm really contributing to the downfall, the eventual downfall of our society. <laughs> well, I mean, look, at least you're not working in fossil fuels. To that point, um, uh, I remember at the sort of beginning of the internet when uh, we didn't have social media, but we had like message boards and fan forums oh, RSS and things feeds like that. Or like and RSS feeds, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and there were people like me who had really been around this since the very, very, very beginning of it being 56K dedicated lines into the university and, and 1200 baud modems at home. Like that's how long I'd been in this community. And I really recognized the toxicity in online culture. And I also recognized that the average person did not get online to go, I love this, it was amazing, right? They got online to go, here's all the reasons I hated it, you know? And um, 
at at the in the early to, through most of the aughts, actually, um, I was one of the people constantly telling legacy media executives who had no idea what the internet was. Now that's all changed, but then they had no idea. Stop listening to these people, right? Like, I want you to imagine someone showing up, like dressed in the most outrageous, ridiculous announce. You know, sometimes people announce to you that they're lunatics, right? Like this person climbed out of a van with a manifesto all around it, and they're yelling at you about your show. Like, do not g give the give this online opinion the weight it actually deserves. Our employers absolutely know what's going on and know what the efforts are, and just ignore it. And that's really a relief for me because it, it wasn't always like that. We had to constantly be saying, like, this is a manufactured opinion. It's not what it's, it doesn't represent the actual audience. I'm I'm really glad we don't have to do that anymore. And oh my God, am I so grateful to be turning 50 and not turning like 16 because I cannot even imagine how challenging imagine. it is yeah. just for these kids mm -hmm. who are cyber bullied, who are catfished by their classmates who are just it's the it's i i cannot even imagine i how much like my generation takes for granted that we could leave the house and nobody knew where we were until we came home and there's absolutely no record of all the dumb shit we did and kids today it's just everywhere all the time they cannot get away from it that's absolutely that's hard, it's hard no i can't them. imagine that's one of the reasons i don't want kids mike wants at least one child I don't want any kids because I don't want to deal with that. I can't imagine being a kid in today's society and having yeah. to filter that um, in a healthy way. I really can't imagine. Yeah. My friends with daughters are, ha are having a really rough week. Um, and, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm selfishly grateful that, that, I, that I don't need to have that conversation with my own daughter. Yeah. That'd be, yeah. My tough partner one. and I have, uh, have recently, like in the last six to eight months, decided that we're oh, we wanted a boy, an uh -huh. older kid. We're both we both work full time, so you know yeah. we're looking for a four to seven year old, yeah, um, to adopt from the U.S. And uh, yeah. we recently opened up ourselves to to actually adopting a daughter. And uh -huh. I didn't know this. Yeah, I'm glad you were here to find that uh, out. I didn't know this. No, Mike was very. <laughs> I love doing this. Too. Mike was very insistent that he wanted a boy because he can't imagine raising a daughter. This has been a conversation yeah. we've had. So this is new news. Yeah. Oh. Uh, it's not really news, though. Uh, but everyone has said that I would be a great girl dad, uh, which I have not, you know, not been comfortable with previously, in the, you know, until about, you know, the end of last year. Um, Interesting. So I can't... Um, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I'm 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 frustrated for my sister who's very up in arms about this, and yeah. for my niece who's uh, ten and having to deal with this. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's you know it's definitely a challenging time. But uh, you know, none of this is really deterring Dennis or I from becoming a parent at some point. Hopefully, God willing, that we find the right kid or kid. So. Um, and I just want to say, you know, this was something I was going to talk about later on. But as a as a dad, um, you are very inspiring. Um, I, listening to your journey with Nolan and Ryan um, has uh, has been um, amazing to hear uh, the ups and downs. Um, but I, I was wondering, you know, since we're talking about this right now, what advice can you give a future dad about raising good humans in the world that we live in today? 
So I think that the, the fundamental most important quality from which everything else springs for me is kindness. A kind person is real different from a nice person. And kindness is a choice. Kindness is vulnerable. And kindness requires a lot of strength and a lot of confidence. So how do we get our kids to a point where they're confident and, and, they, and they feel empowered? We get them there by teaching our kids how to, to discover what their values are and then to establish boundaries to protect those values. And that allows us to have friendships that are complicated. We can be friends with people with whom we disagree on silly things that don't matter, while the boundaries protect us from allowing people into our lives or allowing people to have influence over us, um, where it's not a little thing. It's actually quite a big thing, and it's fundamental to who we are. When, uh, when, when we teach our kids how to have boundaries to protect themselves while they are honorable to their values, um, they are more likely, in my opinion, to become compassionate, empathetic people. Um, and that's what I want more of in the world. I don't know if that's the right way to do it. I don't know if that works. There is no one thing that works for everyone. But whenever I face a difficult choice, I work backwards from how does this, how do I get to this is going to help my child choose kindness? How do, you know, how do we, how do we get there? And that is a massive oversimplification of the entire process, but that's kind of the point of the answer is to oversimplify so that if someone's like, huh, that actually kind of makes a little bit of sense to me. Great. You have a starting point. Thank you. That's, um, I think that that's powerful and, and simple, but, uh, thank you for sharing that. It means, uh, it means a lot. Well, let's, let's transition a little bit into okay. where the book right behind me. Uh, yeah. still just a geek. Um, I actually have the whole collection over there. I um, noticed that it actually makes that, that made me feel kind of good about myself. That's really cool. Like months ago, I ordered these off of eBay as a as a book Aww. as a group, and I was like, "So now I have two copies one one Aww. here and one in storage." That's um, awesome. I, I wish you still got residuals from them, but I imagine that not. It's okay. Um, uh, I'm uh, <laughs> this this just this is a question that comes up a lot. Like, where should I get this book? Like, what's the best way for you for me to get this book? And the answer is, it makes absolutely no difference. The publisher gave me a wonderful advance that I think is extremely unlikely to ever earn out. I think it's unlikely I'll ever get royalties. And even if I were getting royalties, I don't care. I want you to get it in a way that is easiest for you that 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 removes as many barriers between you reading it and uh, uh, and 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 me writing it. And um, uh, if you have a choice, always indie bookshops need our help. They, no matter what, the, the, the most successful indie bookstore in the world still needs your help. Um, and, uh, and that is a place that I encourage people to go. So still just a geek, if, if people haven't yet had a chance to read it yet, um, mm -hmm. well, what's the TLDR that you want to share? Um, you know, I've, I've listened to it twice. 
Uh, oh, wow. I love your narration of it. Thank um, you. I listened to it when it came out and I listened to it the la- in the last week again to kind of refresh and go through it. So I was ready for what's happening right now. So, oh, wow. Uh, Thank you. So tell us a little bit about okay. Just a Geek. In 2004, I collected a bunch of blog posts from my blog, which at the time was new and novel and and uh, and, and and kind of like a uh, uh, kind of a fun thing people paid more attention to than they would have at another time. And I put together a bunch of these blog posts and sort of told this story. And it was kind of a story about. I thought I was turning 30. I thought that this was a story about like kind of figuring out what Star Trek meant to me and what my career meant to me and like how I was kind of like moving myself from being an actor to being a writer um, because being a writer was what I kind of really wanted to do. And uh, it was published, nobody really noticed it um, uh, and it was forgotten. And a couple of years ago, it was brought back around by my editor, David Pomerico at Moro. David said, listen, I read this, I read it when it came out, I just reread it recently, and kind of feel like um, you have changed since you wrote this, and I think that you will probably, um, you might want to revisit it, and then annotate it, and he said, I think, like, I think that it could be really cool, I think that something important could come out of it, and I was intrigued by that idea, Um, so I I got to work on doing that. And what I realized very quickly was that this thing that was written when I was 30 was like not complete. It was a draft. It was a really, really early draft. And the reason that it was incomplete was that I wasn't fully aware of all the things that were going on in my life then. And I was entirely unaware of what had gone on in my life up to that point. The TLDR on that is I never wanted to be an actor. It was real important to my mom. She made me do it. She was the caricature of a stage mother, um, took my childhood away from me and then gaslighted me about it my entire life. And when I was doing the original Just a Geek, I was kind of aware of like, I don't like this. I don't like acting. I don't like auditions. I don't like this industry. I like telling stories. I, But I just feel like I've invested my entire life in this acting thing and I have to do it um, because it's the only way I have any relationship with my family. Because when I was a kid, I stopped being a person in their family and I became this thing. And I became this thing that my mom used so that she could try to be famous and try to find success in the entertainment industry. And my dad was just a bully and was a bully to me my whole life, never wasn't a bully to me. Um, I was thinking earlier today about like all of the things he did to me, all of the humiliating and the the, the cutting remarks and embarrassing me in front of my friends and, and, and then like, when he got, when his abuse got physical when I got older and he would grab me by my neck and poke me in my chest and all that. And I was thinking about all of those things and how much they sucked. And then I stopped to think about the things that he didn't do. Like take me anywhere to do anything together. Like ever take an interest in something that was important to me. Like tell me he was proud of me. Um, 
all of these things that I didn't realize you don't have to earn loving parents just love you and there that happens. I didn't know any of that when I wrote just a geek before I wrote, did still just a geek. Um, uh, I quit drinking alcohol, which I had done for a very long time in an effort to like numb and avoid the pain that I felt. Uh, and with that gone, I really had to confront the reality of that childhood and the reality of, of what that life was like. And I, I did a ton of like really meaningful, helpful therapy. And, uh, when I went to do still just a geek, I was a fundamentally different person. I had, I understood what was going on. I understood that I had survived narcissistic abuse. I knew that I had PTSD. I, my depression and anxiety had been professionally diagnosed and I've been on medication for years to, to help me. Like I'm just in a, in a better place than I was when I, when I originally wrote that book. Um, I also saw in that book, just things that were gross that I hated that I was, that offended me, um, that, uh, I had to find a way to be compassionate toward my younger self in addressing. Uh, it was really easy to just go, dude, you're such a, you're not clever. You think you are, this is embarrassing. Like what is wrong with you? Like, wh why do you think any of this is okay? Like, I, I remember thinking a lot of that when I was going through the first draft and it was realizing, buddy, you're so scared and you're hurting so much. And, and, and like, you're just struggling so hard to be seen. Um, and I understood all of it and didn't make any of it okay. I take responsibility for being gross and, and, and homophobic and misogynist and, 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 and it not born out of cruelty or hatred, born out of laziness and privilege. And like, that's a distinction with a meaningful difference for me, but a little difference for the people who had to endure me being an ass when I was younger and didn't know any better. But now I know. And once I knew, I was I was so grateful to David for giving me the opportunity to talk about this stuff in public, um, to not leave this unfinished thing in the world as the full representation of whatever my contributions are going to be. Um, if the only thing I ever get to put out is still just a geek, I'm going to feel really good about it because I got to tell my story. I got to tell my truth um, after being forced to kind of live as part of my mother's giant lie. Um, and just hope against hope that somehow I could solve the puzzle and like make them love me. Um, uh, when like with, with all of that, having like kind of gone through that whole process, um, I feel like this book is a really honest reflection of, uh, of getting from there to here. And I'm so grateful to, to David and my, my agent Ifa and, uh, and everybody who had to sign off and say, yes, we will give you resources and we'll dedicate, you know, cause it's like, I say in the acknowledgements to the book, it seems really unfair that so many people go into making this book come together. It's unfair and, and like kind of offensive that my name is the only one on the front. And, and there's just all these people and they've all made me feel like I'm the only client they have through all of this. And I know they're working on lots of stuff. They're professionals. But like, it's been a really wonderful, uh, just really validating and um, exhausting at times, but ultimately uh, uh, 
a healing experience. Um, I just feel so, so much less alone in the world than I did like a year ago uh, after doing this and talking to lots of people who have, who, who have shared like their experiences through all of this time as well. All of this comes out in, in your reading of it, uh, in your narration. I mean, this whole, you know, I feel like I've just gone on a journey with yeah. you. And I think, you know, for, for our listeners right now, uh, you know, that's just, that's the, that literally is the TLDR version of, <laughs> of Still Just a Geek, the, you know, the journey that you've been through. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Will, after you release the annotated version of the book, particularly mm-hmm. when, when you are, and I think this happens a lo- to a lot of us as over the years, our reflections on family and the impact that our parents have on us, we come mm-hmm. to a realization of the truth that was that growing up, of the process that was growing up. Um, mm-hmm. Did you hear from immediate family, extended family about uh, the, the way that they received your book, how they read into um, how your experiences were, your truth. How did, you, how did they react to, to your book? The single worst experience of my life, the most painful, traumatic, traumatizing event of my life uh, happened with my sister. Um, we were both horrifically abused by adults on the set of a film and our parents did absolutely nothing to stop it. They participated in it. They benefited from it. And then my mother, my dad never talked about it. And when I tried to talk with it about my mom, she minimized what it meant to me and then tried to make me feel guilty saying that it was a, it was a hard time for the whole family. Um, in working on this book, I needed to tell that story and it was real hard. I didn't want to go back there. I didn't want to think about it. And I knew that I had to. And um, my sister and I have remained close for our entire lives. Um, I'm six years older than her. And um, my wife and I are godparents to her son. And I'm real close to her and her husband and my nephew. And uh, my brother, um, uh, told me I was dead to him years ago. Um, and uh, the sad part about that is I was relieved um, when that happened. Uh, that, that's also in my book. But um, my sister and I stayed really close. So when it came time to do this thing, uh, I said to her, I just need to read this to you or like give it to you to read. And, you know, you're the only one who was there who's honest about it. And we went through that process together and that was real hard for both of us. Um, And I'm really glad that we did. I'm close with my godmother uh, who is my aunt and um, she knows the truth of of the abuse that I endured and she's the only member of my family who believes me. Um, And it hurts like you would not believe to know that the other members of my family who uh, I, I always loved and really loved seeing when, when we were kids, um, for whatever reason, think that I made all this up. It really hurts and it's really sad. Um, it makes me feel like really lonely. Um, and I'm really keenly aware of that loss. Um, I spent like I think is really, really um, uh, uh, reasonable and, and healthy and normal. Like part of all of, of working through all of this, I had to end contact with my parents years ago 
just because of the, they didn't want to have a relationship with me. They wanted to have a relationship with the thing. And if mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be the thing, they weren't interested. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, so, so that like just ended. And um, uh, uh, I was angry about that for a long time. And I was really angry on behalf of the kid I was and all the different times that that kid went through all of these different things. And um, uh, I, I don't feel that anger come up anymore. I feel like I've gotten through a lot of that, right? Like that part of that, that's related to like my limbic system protecting kid me, you know, and it needs to express that great. So I let that happen. And, and now like, it just, it just feels sad. It feels genuinely sad. And I really do feel a real loss. Um, And I, I just have to accept it. You know, throughout this pandemic, there was a graph that went around that I'm, that we all saw of the circle and the stuff inside the circle is stuff you can control and the stuff outside the circle is stuff you can't control. That doesn't just apply to people that are dicks about wearing masks in restaurants, right? I mean, like that, that applies to literally everything in your life and you just have to choose what are you going to put inside the circle and what are you going to leave outside the circle? And trying to have a relationship with people who just don't want to see me had to go outside the circle. Yeah, that uh, that story with your sister was so powerful. And I think that the the point I want to share with you is that I, I'm happy that you received the validation from your sister. Me too. Story. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what were you excited? What were some what was one of your favorite moments to kind of recount in the book and, and enjoy? I, I have mine, but um um, you know, yours. I had more fun than I expected revisiting and especially narrating going to Star Trek The Experience, however many years ago that was, 2001 is when we did that. Um, I hadn't thought about that entire day and evening uh, in decades. And um the memories that that really came back from doing that were great. I loved them. They were super joyful and and really super fun. Um, uh, I for people to whom this is uh, this is all new information. It sounds like this. We can give the impression that this is this intensely heavy book about trauma and abuse and recovery, and that's absolutely a really big part of it, and it's part of the foundation of it. But like. I was a comedy writer for a long time. So like there's stuff in here that's funny. <laughs> there's like jokes in it and stuff. And there's uh, there's there's stories that I think are, are really silly and really, really fun and 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 um, uh, just like memorable and enjoyable. The stories about like discovering being a dad and um, having a relationship with my adult sons now. Um, what was your I'm curious to know what was your what was your favorite part of it? I mean, I. I... One of my one of my favorite parts is the William fucking Shatner story, which yeah, uh, I, you know, just I I I forgot it from the first time, and so I, uh-huh. other than the note, I remember the note, but it's just a, such a, you know, uh, I can being that I was 14, 15, I could put myself in your shoes and like yeah. being that close to those stars that you grew up watching on Star Trek and wanting to go meet them and being introduced to them and to being introduced to your hero, you know, Captain Kirk and having him be a complete dick um, to you. Uh, And then everybody agreeing around you, like that he is a dick. 
uh, you know, that, that whole piece, you know, I, I felt, I felt exactly how you did. Uh, I, I would, um, yeah, it was just, it was just very, but the, the best part about it, I, I think is the, the whole Gene Roddenberry piece of all of this, um, yeah. you know, and how much he looked out for you and, uh, you know, that, that piece, that's one of the highlights for me in the book is when you do talk about your relationship with Gene and, and the impact that he had on your life. So that is absolutely, um, the highlight of that story is not the fact that you got the note and you still have the note, which yeah. is awesome. But the, you know, that Gene Roddenberry was there and, and took, basically took care of you and took care of it. And, uh, I felt the whole time I was working on next generation while Gene was alive, I felt like Gene had my back in a way that none of the other producers did. Um, I just felt like, oh, he cares about me. He respects me. I'm special to him. None of the other producers made me feel that way, right? Like, and a couple of them like really went out of their way to make sure that I knew how replaceable I was. Um, but Gene made me feel special and he made me feel like I mattered. And like, that was just something that I didn't experience in my day-to-day -day life. So like, I really loved that from him. I know he's a complicated person. I know that not everyone's experience with him was mine, but he made these choices to be a particular way with me. And he made these choices to be this particular person with me. And I'm really grateful for it. And I really cherish it. Um, and, and, uh, uh, that, that experience with Shatner where he was so mean, it wasn't just dismissive. It wasn't just annoyed. It was mean. Um, it stayed with me in a way that changed how I approach interactions with strangers. It changed how I choose to respond to people who want to talk to me in the world because of the work that I do or or it, it reminded me how awful it is when somebody who means so much to you whose work means so much to you you know hurts you in a way that all of that becomes tainted it took a long time for me to be like okay with the original Star Trek again and to separate Kirk from Shatner you know all of that said, Bill is a cranky old man, and um, he can be the funniest, most delightful, charming, self-effacing, hilarious, disarming guy you've ever been around. And he can be fucking miserable and insufferable, and you just don't know who's going to show up. And sometimes both guys show up. Uh, <laughs> and And... Um, every now and then clickbait media tries to make a big deal out of this thing that happened 30 years ago. Uh, they did it when the book was coming out, um, which ended up actually being a really great thing for me. Cause like, I didn't have to do anything. And like, I was the hero in that story. <laughs> it's like, thank you. I appreciate it. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, it's like, okay, we're, it's, it's cool. You know, like that's a thing that happened and it's done. I will carry with me for the rest of my life, how safe and loved and protected and valued I felt by my Star Trek family on that day. They still show up for me like that. And it's really, it's really special. And it's something that I, that I'm really grateful for.
think uh, one of the things that you talk about several times is your relationship with Franks. And I, I know adore he calls Franks. you w, w. And yeah. uh, I love you know, that. that just, you know, that made me love uh, him even more than, than I already do. You know, I think he's awesome. And, when I need, when I need some, when I need a mom or a dad, I can text or call Gates and Franks. They always show up for me. When the book made the bestseller list, I texted our group chat and I was just like, hey, I I don't have a mom and dad to tell this to. And I want you all to be my mom and dad right now. Look at this cool thing that happened. And um, everybody showed up. Everybody showed up to celebrate me. Um, and and that felt really good. It felt really, it was really, it was really lovely. Um, I'm really grateful that they, that they show up for me. Let's talk about when you found out that you were a New York Times best-selling author. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you posted about that, but yeah. uh, for those people who don't read out every blog post that you do, yeah. can you share the story of how you found out and what that day was like for you? I got a phone call from my agent and she was like, do you have a minute for a conference call? But that's weird. Okay. Yeah, I do. Um, uh, and she's like, okay, hang on. And uh there's the sound of a conference call being established and she says all right i'm here with and then lists off everybody at the publisher and i immediately thought that i was in trouble because why else would they get together all these people right like i've done something i've like i was absolutely confident like i was like all fascists can die in a fire and for some reason I'm in trouble for it or something like that. Like, that's what I thought. And my editor says, I just wanted to tell you that you're that still just a geek is on the indie bookshops bestselling list is number 17. And I was like, that's amazing. Oh my God. Cool. Thank you. And he said, and I also wanted you to know that you're on the New York times list at number nine. What I just heard you say, and I know that this can't be right, and I'm going to need you to say it again because I'm super confused right now. What I heard you say was, I'm on the New York Times list at number nine, but I know that's not what you said. What did you say? You're on the New York Times list at at number nine. And I just didn't even know what to do. All I could do was thank every single person who was on that call who worked real, 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 real hard to make it all happen, you know? The, um, I made this choice a really long time ago when the book was done, uh, I knew that I was going to obsess anxiously over how it would be received. And I knew that I would feel, if I allowed myself, I would feel like if this doesn't make these, if it doesn't do these numbers, if it doesn't sell this many, if it doesn't make these lists, if it doesn't get this number of stars on Amazon, you're a failure and you suck at everything. I don't do that anymore. But that part of me exists. It existed and it controlled me for a really long time. It's the part where my dad used to talk to me all of the time. And that part doesn't exist anymore. In order for have to have that part not exist anymore, well, look, like, I can't let someone else define success for me. I can't let sales or reviews define success. What's successful? I worked for two years on a book that everybody that I've shown it to so far has responded very positively to, and they've really gotten like a a very clear message out of it. 
And when they tell me without me saying, what did you get out of it? They're describing to me what I hoped people would get out of it. As far as I'm concerned, that's success. Like I did it and whatever happens after this does not matter. And I remember I was in this room, in this game room. And I said out loud, dude, you have to remember whatever's gonna happen with this book has already happened. You just haven't observed the results. There is nothing you can do. It's done. It is out of your hands. It was the people on that call who did all the really, really hard work to support me that made this other thing happen. And I was really grateful for that. And I start, I heard the voice that started to say like, well, if you're off, if you're not on it for more than a week and I was like, no, 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 stop. You don't get to talk anymore. This is really cool. And what a, what a beautiful, wonderful gift this is. What a, what, a, what a wonderful surprise. I called my friend, John Scalzi, and I said, I'm on the New York Times list. And he says, I know. And I was like, what do you mean you know? And he was like, I, I know. O okay. And I said, John, like, what does it mean? And he said, it means that your first name is now New York Times bestselling author, your middle name is Will, and your last name is Wheaton, which is what his editor told him. What's real funny is uh, another friend of mine who has the same editor, who has also been on the New York Times list, what I called him, and I said, what does it mean? He said the exact same thing, and he said, my editor said this, and I was like, oh, you and John have the same editor. So uh, uh, he said, it gets to go on everything you do for the rest of your life. It gets to be in your bio forever. That's really cool. But practically what it means is you get to do one more book. You probably get to write one more book. And, and I thought that's cool because I want to write another book. I, that's what I want to do. Uh, I have a big list of ideas and stuff and I just want to do them. I kind of wandered around my house in a little bit of a daze. Nobody was home. I was here alone when it happened. And um, Anne came home with one of our friends. I think we were going to barbecue that evening. And it was just Anne and, and our friend Stephanie. And I was like, um, so this is a thing that happened? And we ended up like, that dinner turned into like celebrating that whole thing. It's, it's cool. It's really neat. So cool that you got to share that with John Scalzi, or he already knew. Uh, your, your narration of his books is one of my favorite Oh, it's so fun. Anytime he's got a book, anytime he's got a book, I pre-order that. Uh, I pre-order the Audible version of it because I know that you're gonna do it, and I I eat that that up. Oh, so. thanks. He and I are a nice really good that. creative team. Uh, we talk the same way. We're from the same. We're of the same generation, and we're from the same culturally. Uh, a unified area like he grew up just a little bit east of where I grew up in LA County so we grew up listening to the same radio stations and watching the same local TV and and being influenced by the same kind of local personalities so even though we had really different experiences our cultural influences uh, um, uh, and generational influences are identical so I can talk the way John writes without a whole lot of effort and we have found that like yeah, in, in the like Cyrano de Bergerac version of our of my life, like he's doing a great job behind that edge. Why don't we talk a little bit about Star Trek? Because okay. we all love Star Trek here. So, um, you know, one of the things, and, and this ties back to the book, I love how you refer back to tapestry 
yeah. quite a bit here yeah. and there. And, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about how the message of that episode resonates with you now, having written and written, which is one process, and then narrated your book, which is a whole nother process. In the acknowledgments, or rather in the afterword for Still Just a Geek, um, I'm like, you know, kind of like trying to close it all up and say goodbye. And I wrote that, like, I really hoped that I would feel a catharsis while I wrote this. And all I kind of feel is re-traumatized. And then it's annotated. Oh, by the way, this is now many months later. And the, I found the catharsis. The catharsis happened in the narration of the audiobook saying it out loud made it real, which dovetails with me not wanting to say Shatner was a dick to me in 1988, because saying it out loud would make it real. I didn't realize that those are two halves of the same coin. Saying it all out loud made it real, giving a lot of the emotional pain and burden my mother put into my hands and on my shoulders back to her was really helpful and really healing. That part of the process was, um, was really important for me. Um, and it made a, a, a really big, really significant difference um, in how I felt about the whole thing when, like, when it was all finished. For the longest time, my favorite episode of Next Generation was Inner Light because I loved the idea of someone living an entire lifetime in what's literally the blink of an eye. And that was because it meant that what that meant for me, like the escapist part of me, what that meant was maybe this thing I'm enduring all of this suffering and this loneliness and this pain and, and all of it is just a few seconds on the bridge of a starship somewhere and I'm going to wake up. Well, that's magical thinking. Come on, man. Like that's just that science fiction. That's not real. And that maybe that works for kids, but you're an adult now and you need to do something different. But card says when I plunked on one thread of the tapestry of my life, the entire thing came unraveled. That's a real different message. And it's a really, and I'm a different person then. And that actually said something I really needed to know and really needed to hear. We're complicated humans. Tapestries are complicated, tightly woven and, and, and exquisitely woven. And they take a long time to make, but they come apart very easily if you don't take care of them, if you don't honor and respect them and, and care for them. I ended up learning from tapestry that I needed to treat my life the same way that uh, rather than feeling like, you know, someday it's all gonna magically be okay. I have to learn to look at the whole thing and see where all these beautiful, wonderful, good, meaningful parts exist because I survived the other parts that are also part of keeping the entire thing together. When I got to go be Wesley on Star Trek Picard, I got to have a conversation with the writer and we talked a little bit about, they were like, well, what do you think about Wesley? And virtually everything I said about his emotional condition and, and his like psychological character and all that is in that scene. Um, not all of it's in words, a lot of it is in performance, but Wesley specifically says the universe is this exquisite tapestry, fragile, and always one thread pull away from completely unraveling. And that is, you know, our lives are not that different from that. The universe is a stand-in for our lives there. And it's just like, how are you gonna protect the tapestry and add to it? 
or let it become completely unraveled. Like, again, it's an oversimplification, but for someone like me who was living through crisis after crisis after crisis and an incredible pain after incredible pain, the simpler things could be, the easier it was. In this direction, this thing, in this direction, this thing. Okay, well, that really oversimplifies all of the complexities in either thing, but I really know which direction is the better one for me. Yeah, and speaking of um, Star Trek Picard season two, I really see that as kind of like a expanded 10 episode version of Tapestry where with a lot more, yeah. you know, they stuff Q in there and obviously yeah. Seven and Rafi and, you know, um, yeah. just really curious as to your reflection, because a lot of that was also about even more so um, an expanded version of Picard looking at his childhood and at his young, like just as his youth. Um, but then the trauma that came with it and how that may have also resonated with you um, since you were also part of that season. And you also, you know, you were able to interview, obviously, the cast throughout yeah. the actual airings and you were able to really see that come to life and see fans react. Just mm -hmm. curious as to how you resonate with that yourself. Um, so, so many answers to that question. Uh, I'm trying to pick one and and stay on it i am re-watching next generation i built uh i went through the entire uh, list of all the episodes mm -hmm. um uh and i built what i would consider like the wesley story right it's the episodes where wesley's character grows and changes and, and exists and is kind of like in the spotlight and uh as i i just wanted to get to know him again uh before i went to play him as the traveler and in doing that, um, with the knowledge of Picard being an abuse survivor and Picard knowing what happened with his mother and knowing who his father was, I got to tell you, season one and two Picard, who just seemed to just sort of like hate kids, is so much more complex knowing what's going on with him. He doesn't hate kids. He's terrified of hurting a kid the way he was hurt as a child. And he just doesn't know what to do. It like, mm -hmm. it gives, it retcons his character in a way that I, like is astounding to me. And I know this cause I've watched it mm -hmm. and like, it just, it lays in there just beautifully and, and perfectly. It was so unexpected to be invited to be part of it. I had, because of ready room, mm -hmm. I talked and, and because they're my family, I know everything that's happening in the Star Trek universe for a long time. Like I know stuff that hasn't even been filmed yet. And, and like knowing that, like Wesley just wasn't in there. And I was like, that's okay. You know, um, even if Wesley isn't part of Star Trek, I'm part of Star Trek in this way that's incredible where I'm not limited to being part of a single show. I get to live in the Star Trek universe, which is so cool. And it really mirrors Wesley Crusher's journey as well, right? Wesley gets to exist in all of space and time, in all of, all of the universe. I absolutely love that. And it is a great place to be. Um, uh, just, it's just, I'm like, I couldn't be happier about it. This thing with Wesley felt like a bit of a late addition to me. And I've been a late addition before. And the last time I was a late addition to Nemesis, they cut it. And, you know, you just take nothing for granted and hope that the ideas 
kind of all line up and everything happens. And I mean, up until it aired, I was still convinced that it was somehow not going to happen, <laughs> even though I knew that it was. Um, it was just great. And to do that scene with Issa um, was also really special. I think that if Wesley had gone to wherever they all go to, I, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen season three yet. Um, uh, I just know what's in the press, right? And what I know in the press is that everybody's together at some point. I don't know mm -hmm. where that's going to be. I don't know if it's like at Chateau Picard or like if it's at Starfleet headquarters, I have no idea where it is, but like wherever they were all together, I was sad that I didn't get to be part of that day just because it would have been so cool to be with the family all together in that moment, right? Not like, it's not about my ego. It's not about being excluded. It's not, it's not about me. It's about like, it's about like, I just wanted to be there with them and be part of it. Um, it would have been a real different experience for me to be there. I would have been the child again. And that's not bad. I would really have liked that. I would have loved it. Getting to do this scene with Issa, for me to feel like I am an adult and I'm part of Star Trek and I'm not that little boy anymore. As this adult human who I am now, choose to be part of Star Trek in this way was really special and meaningful for me. I'm part of legacy Star Trek. And there are these series on now where a lot of their cast was not born when I was doing my series. And I have this unbelievable gift where I get the opportunity to be to them who Jimmy Dewan and George Takei and Walter Koenig were to me, especially George, especially George. I have an opportunity to like pay forward or to help move the ball down the field a little bit. It's like I got to carry it for a little while and now I get to hand it off. So doing that scene with Issa where I don't know what's happening with Corey. I don't know what's happening with Leslie the Traveler. We may never see them ever again. But the fact that in the Star Trek canon, he's not a kid anymore and neither is she. And he gets to like bring her into this world that, that he obviously cares about and really matters to him. It felt to me like, way to go, Wesley Crusher, you grew up. Like I grew up and so did you. And I'm really happy if nothing ever happens with Wesley again, that is such a beautiful piece of closure on his on his story. Although there's a big part of Phantom that's like, Traveler series, Traveler series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I hope you get to That'd be awesome. Yeah, I hope you totally get to um, you know, just have a guest appearance on Lower Decks or Product. I'll, so, I'll take like, it. I'll take it. I, I was not shy at all about talking to I've talked to the showrunners of all the shows and I'm like, listen, I'm just you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. I am laying this down on the table. If you ever want Wesley Crusher to be part of your show even in a background throwaway visual gag. I'm 100% there. I'm all for it. Whatever you want. Like, just Lower know. Would be right just, for that. Ju just know that the actor who plays the character is all in and, and really on board with that, with that idea. Um, and as Akiva Goldsman said in, uh, in, in Ready Room, they all knew that, and then they went to war over who gets Wesley. And that... I'm not going to lie. That made me feel really special. And, look, and I was, I was really happy for, I was really happy for Wesley. Right. Yeah. And I was happy for who was, I was happy for what Wesley represents. And I was happy for all the kids who saw themselves in Wesley. 
I felt like it was a, it was, it was like a, it was a win for all of us. And look, if awesome. we can have an episode where Boimler obsesses about Tom Paris, I'm sure we can get an episode where Boimler obsesses about Wesley Crusher. I mean, come on. I actually <laughs> pitched this. I, I pitched this idea to Mike McMahon. I pitched this to McMahon at Chicago. Uh, uh, I said, okay, so here's this. Here's my idea. Wesley goes to uh, the Cerritos and um, um, he's still just an ensign, right? Like he never goes, never finishes Starfleet Academy. So he just goes to the Cerritos. I don't know where it lands in the timeline, but for whatever reason, he's at the Cerritos and he just really wants Mariner to think he's cool. It's not about, it's, there's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing about it. It's not that story at all. Right. He's just like, you're a captain's daughter. You're such a badass. Everybody thinks you're cool. Please think I am cool, right? Like you're the you're the captain's kid. I'm the doctor's kid. We got all this stuff in common, right? Boimler is like Wesley Crusher from the Enterprises on the Serenos. And Boimler is like a little dog that can't stop peeing because he's so excited and he's always running around and he keeps cock blocking Wesley when he's trying to be cool around around a uh, 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 Mariner. And the thing is, Boimler comes up with a science project. Wesley's like trying to be cool, right? And Boimler shows up with a science project and Wesley turns into a nerd because he's like, oh my God, it's a neutrino river. You know, and he just goes like, and Mariner's like, oh, nerds and leaves. So I, was, I said, uh, this is, that's my pitch, right? I don't think it's enough to sustain an episode. It's like a sea story in an episode. If nobody will pay to have it done, what if we just wrote these th like three scenes and we read them at a Star Trek convention with those actors, right? Like that'll happen at a Star Trek missions event or something. And McMahon thinks about it for a second. And he says, so I'm already writing this in my head. Uh, and... Um, you know, I remember that Wesley just kind of showed up out of space and time at Troy and Riker's wedding. And I was like, non-canonical. And he goes, yeah, I know, but just go with me on this. What if the way you summon Wesley Crusher is to have a wedding? So he just shows up at weddings to like eat the food and leave. Like that's just all he does. He goes all over the galaxy, all through space and time to weddings everywhere from like thousands of years ago and he just eats the food and leaves and that's why he's on the cerritos somebody is getting married so he's shown up for the wedding and this all happens right before the wedding and i said i love it and the title of the episode is the wedding crusher oh that's fantastic nice. <laughs> that's awesome and and so um the last time we talked about it we were like legitimately committed to sitting down and spitballing the idea and writing three pages of and, and putting it together. I really hope we could do it because I think it will be fun. We have a, a similar sense of humor um, and also Mike's just a really great writer. Um, uh, so that's probably the closest I'll ever get to Lower Decks, but like I feel pretty good about it if that's as close as I got. And I just, to get to be up on stage with like Jack and Tawny would be so cool. <laughs> So like, that's my idea. And it's not a big secret. I've been talking about this for a few months. Like, I think it would be really great to do that. We'd love to talk about the ready room, but I, I really, okay. you know, this is a gay Star Trek podcast though. So yeah. I, I do want to, I do want to kind of uncover something that I didn't think I didn't hear in the book. Okay. Um, and that's uh, your, your process of becoming an ally and advocate for mm -hmm. the LGBTQIA community. There are times where you comment in the book about how you 
you realize now that using the term guys is discriminatory and hurtful to a part of our, our population. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your education in, in this area. What, when did this all click for you? Obviously, you know, you've mentioned earlier that your younger self was a bit homophobic. If you could just share a little bit about that sure. journey for you, for, for you. As I was coming of age in the 80s, this doesn't, I'm not, I'm not making excuses. I'm just like, this is just the, the circumstances. Um, uh, I grew up in an extraordinarily homophobic culture um, where being gay was treated as like aberrant and weird. And um, uh, the adults in my life, like really, they, it was like um, uh, created this impression that like, uh, every gay man in the world is a predator and it was terrible. And I was like scared, you know, um, and it was all lies. And, um, I didn't know any better until I was in, it's so awful. I didn't fully understand it until I was well into my teens that like, this was all lies, but that did not, I didn't realize it enough to let go of like internalized homophobia and that thing that people do that racists do where you separate people into like the good whatever the good race and the bad people you know the good people and the bad people and all that and it was just like i had to get to a place where i realized that we are all human beings and that all of the homophobia that I had been raised around and all of the homophobic culture in comedy and in television and movies and music, that all of that, um, that all of this stuff just really comes from a place of extraordinary ignorance and is really, I, I believe, um, motivated by the same thing that motivates white supremacist evangelical Christianity. It's just hatred of an other. And that it's really important to people who self-identify as conservatives to hate an other. Uh, both of my parents are super racist. Um, uh, my dad's like openly racist around people all the time. And I, I knew that it wasn't okay, but I didn't fully understand how not okay. I was entirely ignorant to the existence of privilege, completely ignorant to the existence of privilege until I was in my late 30s. I didn't even know what it was. I had never even heard of it. When I knew what it was, I was mortified and embarrassed and realized like I have benefited from systemic inequality my entire life and I've taken it completely for granted. I mean, thank goodness it didn't, I didn't feel entitled, but like, what's the difference? And I think it was around the time that I started seeing laws getting passed to really marginalize non-heterosexual people, right? I started seeing laws passed to like stop people from, from, from getting married and this idea, all of those ideas that when I realized that there's all these people who are afraid of, the, of, of what at the time I only knew of as the gay and lesbian community, um, that all these people are trying to minimize this and, sh and, and hurt it and all that. And the people that are doing that are all people I think are fucking horrible. They're all gross, terrible, awful people. Why are they so threatened by, by all of these people? None of that makes any sense to me. Also, I had a lot of friends who were gay and didn't talk about it because I was such a big, stupid, loudmouth homophobe. And a lot of the places that I felt safe in were queer spaces, theaters, 
right? Like theaters and and like 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 places that were like I loved going to drag shows. Like I felt so safe and unjudged and just like accepted in all this place. I eventually came to realize when I was aware of my privilege that all of the phobias that I carried with me were manifestations of insecurity that I carried from being young. And like I say in the book, and like I said earlier in this podcast, when you don't know, you don't know, but now you know, so what are you gonna do about it? And um, it became extremely important to me, having become aware of the privilege that I have, that it not be wasted. Too many cishet white men, just benefit from all of this privilege we have and never try to do anything to like upset that or even acknowledge how fucking wrong it is. And it's not okay. Someone once said to me, I was, I was really upset about some big public transphobia that had happened. And a person said to me, you know, when you talk about this, what I get from you is really big. Nobody had my back. So I have your back energy. It's not my desire to come in here and make this about me and be some kind of like fucking white savior, you know, guy or whatever, you know, like that's not my, that's not my goal at all. My goal is to be the person I need in the world. And the person I need in the world says, everybody gets a seat at this table. Everybody gets to love who they love and live their very, very best life. We shouldn't have to experience something firsthand. We shouldn't have to have a daughter to know that women deserve bodily autonomy. We shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to preface comments by saying, as a father uh, or as a husband of, 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 you know, as a father of daughters, we shouldn't have to do that. Having experienced firsthand with all of my privilege, how much it hurts to be constantly told, you don't get to be here, you don't belong here, there's something wrong with you, you should be ashamed of who you are, over and over and over and over again. I know how bad that feels, and I cannot imagine what it must have felt like to be one of my friends who I liked and cared about, who I didn't care, you know, to listen to me make like really terrible, casually cruel jokes effortlessly without thinking about it. And now I see that we're in a world where fascism is 100% on the rise, like it's not coming to America, it's here. It's here and what are we gonna do about it? It is like long past time to pick sides. And I know that the fascists and the Trumpists who are essentially the same thing stand against everything that I stand for. And even though I am like, you know, I can pass in America because I'm a white guy, I'm really afraid of what's coming and what has already arrived here. And it's going to take people that are not at risk to really speak up and really and and put ourselves at risk. Not even in the same way the people we're trying to stand up for are at risk to hopefully make a little bit of a difference. Nobody, nobody in the world should be made to feel like they're less than someone else because they are in a consensual loving relationship with anybody at all. Yeah, one of the things that you said, Will, uh, that really resonated with me is, you know, oftentimes people have asked me um, if you could go back in time and just, you know, if you weren't gay, you know, if you weren't part of the LGBT community, would you choose that? And I honestly answer no, because I think having gone through the trauma of having to come out and to be an other in my life has really made me empathetic and has really made me realize how much I need to stand up for people 
around me and how angry injustice uh, makes me because of my experience. And I feel that yeah. if I didn't go through that, yeah. um, if I didn't go through that pain of coming out, of having to really reconcile my sexuality with my identity and my family and my, and my community, um, I wouldn't be in that place where I empathize and I see others. Um, and I think that those experiences really allow us to see the world for what it is and to fight for what we feel it should be. So what you just said really, really hits the mark when it comes to my experience as well. And, and I'm really, I'm, and I'm also really grateful to be part of Star Trek, which has this legacy of progressivism and this legacy of like positive representation. I just, I have the biggest crush in the world on Wilson Cruz. Um, like, first of all, he's so unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievably beautiful, just the most yes. gorgeous man I have ever seen in my life. But he exudes this kindness and this warmth and this love and this safety, right? Like when I'm in the same room as Wilson, I'm like, this is a fucking safe place to be and I love it. The relationship between Culver's and Stamets is so beautiful and wonderful. And I love, we talked about this on Ready Room, the relationship is not about the gay struggle. You know, the relationship is about like, oh my God, work was such a fucking pain in the ass today. Like, I just, I love that. I love it so much. And I think it's really important. It's really, 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 really important to just normalize relationships and, and normalize this wonderful, complicated, beautiful world that we live in. Um, and, uh, and, and a thing that Star Trek has always said that it's saying right now is there's a place for you in the future. And, uh, uh, you're going to have to work like uh, uh, to make sure that that future happens. And, and by doing that work, there's a place for you when we get there. And that's something that I've always really liked and really been, been grateful for and is a thing that I love talking about whenever um, uh, I get to talk to any of, our, uh, any of the queer members of any of the shows. That's awesome. And thanks for all of that. Your, your advocacy and your allyship is, is so uh, visceral and so real and so vulnerable. It, it really, you know, I appreciate that. And I know that member, that our community does as well. So thank you for all thanks. of that. I'm just one person, but um, I'm at least, but I'm at least I'm one more person, you know? Yeah, we need everyone, but one more person helps. And, and yeah. can you introduce us to Wilson Cruz by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> I saw him once in um, Hell's Kitchen. I almost attacked him, um, but he was like <laughs> with people. So I was Please like, don't no, attack what? Wilson Cruz. I was like, attack him out <laughs> enthusiasm. Um, um, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm, sure you've, I'm sure you've seen him in like just, you know, being Wilson Cruz in, in the world. But I can tell you just as somebody who's had the, the pleasure of like interviewing him on Ready Room, talking to him at conventions, being in the car with him, going places. He's really lovely. He's a lovely, Seems delightful, like a, a extraordinarily yeah, kind sure. human. I just, I really, really like him. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you. Um, let me see, just to wrap this up, is there anything you're working on that you wanna share with us? Uh, you know, what, what can we expect from you now that you are a New York Times bestselling author? Uh, you know, so I've got a conference call coming up. I have a call coming up and the call is about what we do next. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I have stuff that I want to do next. 
but I'm going to have a conversation with the professionals at my publisher and we're going to figure out what comes next. And Are you thinking presu- like fiction, nonfiction, like do you yes. have any semblance? Yeah, we're thinking we're 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 like it's yes, we're thinking of both of those things. Um, I I would prefer to do fiction. Um, I don't know if I don't know if that's going to happen. I am I'm in the I'm at at the moment. I am working on a writing project that hasn't been announced, so I can't tell you what it is. But I think you'll be pleased when you find out about it. I also just signed the contract for an upcoming audio book, which I'm also not allowed to talk about, but I'm thrilled when it was announced. I was like, please pick me, please pick me, please pick me. <laughs> and they did. And that's really great and really exciting. Um, and uh, 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 there's another unbelievably cool project uh, that, uh, that, we, that I also just signed the contract for, but also hasn't been announced. So there's cool stuff coming up um that i'm so really busy, really excited busy, about, about but i'm but i'm not allowed to talk about it um yes. i can tell you this and i can tell your audience this because it will be common knowledge because we tease it in the ready room on thursday i went to toronto to go to their enterprise and i got to sit down and interview ethan peck um uh, and henry alonzo myers i also got to go into a brand new set that was built for season two and I got a tour of that set from their set designer who walked me through both the practical, here's how we built it, and my favorite part, the in-universe, this is why it looks the way it looks stuff. It's really, really awesome. Uh, we just finished our 50th episode of Ready Room. Awesome. And, and thank you. I had no idea. I didn't even know until we were like working on the script and, 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 uh, and Emily was like, yeah, it's the 50th episode. And I was like, well, shit, I guess I got to bring donuts to the studio. That's exciting. Um, I do know what we're doing next. Um, uh, I, but it hasn't been announced yet. Uh, so I can't say what it is, but ready room. We're just about to take a tiny little break. Um, and we will be, uh, back at it sooner than you think, um, for, uh, for more stuff. Um, and to everybody who, who does watch Ready Room, um, I just want to say thank you. Um, because y'all tune in, I get to keep doing this. And because I get to keep doing this, I get to be part of Star Trek in this way that comes with zero baggage and zero expectations. Like, I get to be the fan I've always been. Um, and, uh, and I get to do that for my job. And, uh, I'm just really, really loving it. So to everybody who watches it and to everyone who shares it with other people, just please know that um, I am aware of you being in the audience and it really does matter to me. And I'm doing my very best to give you an experience that you look forward to every week. Well, that is exciting. And we can't wait to hear about all of the, when they're announced, all the wonderful projects that you're a part of. Thanks. Uh, where can fans go who do learn more about Uh, What's going on with you? And Uh, so the easiest thing to do is to remember only one URL. It's willwheaton.net. There are links to the social medias that I use. I do not use Twitter, but I use Facebook and um, and stuff. Uh, You can get links to like my independently published books, my independently published audio books, the podcast that I did during the first year of the pandemic. I released every every week. I I recorded and released a new public domain uh, little short story recording that was I loved, but I, I, I think literally 50 people in the world listened to it. 
So I'm hoping that somehow those numbers will go up and <laughs> people will find out about it. Uh, but everything anybody will ever wanted to know about me, the place you want to start is at willwheaton.net. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for being uh, here with us tonight. Yeah, thanks so much, Will. Really it's appreciate it. I enjoyed it. A pleasure to talk to you. And, and, thank you very um, much. I hope you'll come uh, back again and talk talk with us some more. Uh, after um, listen, I, uh, some of these projects are relevant to your interests, so I would love to do that. Ooh, um, uh, and awesome. uh, and I'm and I'm and I'm I'm really uh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. So the next time, I'll make sure Tanya and Elena know. Um, to, to get in touch. So I really appreciate your time. Um, stay uh, stay you, safe and healthy. Dude. Thank you. Um, and I'll talk to you next time. All right. All right. Take care, Will. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bye. you, Will. Bye. Bye. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah, totally. I, you know, I had a great time talking to Will, obviously. Let you run the show mostly since you're the most, you're, you're the more enthusiastic of the two of us. But, you know, I turned in here and there. You did. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, you know, I, I think we had a really great time with Will and uh, hopefully that comes out in the final cut of it all. But uh, Will was super great to spend all that time with us. Yeah, it was close to an hour and a half. I was shocked by how much time he gave us, but I guess he was hopefully also enjoying the conversation. Yeah. And um He's got uh, three. Well, he shared with us three major things that are unannounced that are coming out or not. He didn't share the details, but he said three, you know, talked about three things that um, that are unannounced that he has signed contracts for, which yeah, is really sounds exciting. Like he's, uh, yeah, it sounds like he's really busy, which is great. He has a lot yeah. of stuff coming up. We're going to have a short hiatus um, of the ready room, but it sounds like he has plenty of other things on his plate. So good for him. Yes. Yeah, it's great. And um, and he did say that it might be something that we're interested in uh, having him back for. So that would Apparently. be really cool to have a yeah. have a. Um, so we really didn't get to talk about the ready room, uh, which I had some questions for. We kind of ran out of time. There were definitely uh, more we're... questions that we had in our back pocket that we didn't end up asking, but that's OK. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I felt super prepared for it. I mean, I, you know, I had been preparing for I, I literally your whole life, sharing. your whole life for this interview. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe not my whole life, but yes, uh, you've peaked, Mike. It's over uh, there. It's over. Um, no, I, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, it was exciting and I, I enjoyed myself thoroughly. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great interview. So yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the parts that uh, I thought was, right off the bat, he was super excited. He did our intro, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. And then he shared uh, shared this bit, uh, which I didn't think to I don't think we'll include in the er original like the interview. But I think I'm going to I'm going to share it with everyone right now uh, is uh, he really enjoyed doing the intro. And this was his reaction to that. That was amazing. <laughs> that okay, so that's the first time I've non-ironically referred to myself as a New York Times bestselling author. My friends have endured the insufferable, obnoxious, 
announcing of my entrance into literally every room with hello i'm new york times best-selling author will wheaton like it's just a bit that i do with my friends and my family that's the first time i've read it in a way that makes me feel like wait a minute that's a thing that people kind of care about cool <laughs> so that's thanks cool. for that. Yeah. that was an unexpected a uh, little burst of a little pop rocks burst of joy in my day <laughs> so we'd really like to hear from our listeners wouldn't we johnson yes yes we'd love to hear from everyone well first a plug for the podcast in case Listeners aren't sick of hearing it about, about it already. But if you like this episode or other episodes of Deep Space Pride, we love to get your positive review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also email us or reach us on social media. You can email us at deepspacepride at gmail.com. And you can DM us on Twitter and Instagram at deepspacepride. And let us know who else you want us to interview in the future. And we will do our darnest to make that happen. We are tenacious about these interviews. So we, you know, months and months and months of where well, one of this. us, one of us is tenacious. The other one is kind of more laid back and just, you know, watches things happen. But here we are. Yes. I, I yes. Our, our listeners are probably really confused about who is who right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So next week we'll talk about the last two episodes of Strange New Worlds. And then which actually next week I am on a plane. I am away for the next few weeks uh, visiting or taking a vacation and going to Asia. So I will be half a world away, 12 hours away. I will be 12 hours in the future. In (laughs) your future. Yes. Yes. Um, So we have banked a few episodes. We're going to release an off topic episode and we also have a cool episode that we recorded with Callie Wright from Queer Explaining and talking about transgender issues and, um, and representation in Star Trek. and representation in Star Trek, including uh, the episode that we focused on for a good part of the discussion was season seven's uh, episode from Deep Space Nine, Prodigal Daughter. So look for that at the end of this month. And then we'll be back in August, uh, catching up on everything that's happened pretty much the entire month of July, because mm-hmm. there is no news to to speak of. And um, well, by that time, I think there will be some news. Yes. And we but as check. of this recording, uh, Correct. we have no news. Correct. And uh, this is our last uh, recording. So, yes. Um before august so mm-hmm. but we're still gonna release episodes so subscribe and listen and uh definitely reach out to us and uh we'll get back to you probably when i get back from asia so yeah probably <laughs> what All right. no it's true um well thanks everybody for listening and uh we'll see you again real soon thanks everyone Bye. Bye.
Deep Space Pride is a production of Coconut Media Works. Executive producers Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. For more great Star Trek discussion, discover the other shows of the Trek Geeks podcast network at trekgeeks.com or find us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.